Welcome everyone to another great episode of the Do Better Dev Show. I'm here with your favorite co-host of all time. I, I don't even think there's a competition anymore. Nathan, how you doing Nathan? It's such an honor. <laughs> I'm so impressed. Uh, yeah, I'm doing well. How are you, uh, main co-host? Oh, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm main now? Yeah, yeah you're the main, you're the wow. main co-host because you do the intro. And I'm the other one. Nice. Yeah. So I'm the entry point, and then I call you as my function. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, you're the main. I see. Yeah, I see. yeah. I'm just one of the sub processes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so great. Uh, <laughs> I'm do now. I feel great. Oh, I, excellent. I can't take that back now. No, uh, it's on record. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, pretty interesting last week and a half or so. Okay. Um, nothing it- actually happened, but it was oh. just uh, a lot of walking and thinking and uh, so introspective introspective yeah yeah nothing really came out of it so maybe i've just peaked life i just know everything i need to know ever um but certain things came out which i don't probably won't want to say on record but everything else is uh yeah i've peaked wow congratulations so uh we can now enter the next phase of the show which (laughs) because it key there's no point in doing better once you reach the peak so I don't really like the doing worse show, but we'll just like the doing the same. Doing the same show. Doing yeah. the same dev show, which after 52 episodes, I think it's okay to just kind of do the same thing. Yeah. We've got the rhythm going. Uh, people know what to expect, which is roughly this. Yeah. It's and good. if they listen to each one episode every week, it'll be a year's worth and they'll probably forget what happened in episode one. So we could just re-repeat smart yeah we could literally just start from episode one again Hmm. and that would be a whole another year's content and then when we're a year older than that that's year three yeah so So yeah do the do the same dev show Mm -hmm. starts next week or next recording next recording yeah because we we peak now yeah cool great uh well you mentioned that you were being introspective and it was an interesting week did Mm -hmm. you find anything that was interesting, cool, or frustrating? Uh, not about myself, but in the tech world, I did. Well, great. That's why I asked. Okay, cool. Uh, because about everything about me is just frustrating. So, about life uh, <laughs> or about tech. So, the frustrating thing I want to mention is last week, we were talking about how I'll be starting off with Rust. Oh, yeah. And I'm here to shit on it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this was the update we, we didn't know we needed until you said it was going to happen. Yeah. So after two and a half weeks of hardcore rush programming, or semi-hardcore, I guess, um, I am not a fan. Um, there, there are pros, which are very small so far. I'm obviously not an expert, mm-hmm. um, but the cons list is way too long. Um, so far, the, the thing I hate the most about it is it doesn't have very clean subroutine like parallelization threading modules okay um, because the whole thing about rushed is it's extremely memory safe so it panics the first something goes wrong in memory thing uh, and it needs like proper um, because everything is passed by reference unless explicitly said so you have to define them for each subroutine you're calling uh, or each or thread shared, that goes away. Shared references. Exactly. No yeah. shared reference. So you have to like give them duplicate <laughs> copies of everything. Yeah. And it, I just I just really dislike that because now I have to think about, oh, function A to B that is actually 
on the same main thread can be passed by reference, but thread ABC, I need to now duplicate the value. And I feel like the compiler should be able to just be figure that out. It should just say, oh, this is all spinning up a new thread. Maybe I should duplicate the values because I have the reference to the value. I can very easily duplicate what the actual content is because that's what I'm spoiled to by um, Python because all it does, it'll just go to C and say, fork the process. Give me entirety of what I have right now in its own thread. And C just goes back to the kernel and it's like, uh, just fork this. And But Rust is coming to me and says, fork you. And I don't <laughs> like this. Uh, <laughs> so I figured out some sense of um, concurrency in it. But the problem is, Concurrency within concurrency is not supported because of how it does the process and thread differentiation. Okay. So I'm using a library that has parallelization in it, uh, and I'm trying to parallelize that. So I want to, it's parallelizing network calls, and I want to parallelize making multiple network calls at the same time. Okay. But it doesn't like that because now I have to define a different way. And this is my biggest pet peeve about Rust so far the documentation is crap. The documentation is very much just developers thinking, oh, whoever uses this must know what they're doing and just putting that out. You go on Stack Overflow, people ask questions and it's those like rushed hardcore people who figured everything out just being like, oh, why don't you do this this way? Giving zero context of what the person is confused about and just being like, this is the right way to do this, just do this. And they're like, okay, but I don't know what I wanna do and what I have so far converting to this right format. So now you gotta go read the docs which are just basically the source code <laughs> and I'm just not, not having a good time. Okay. And certain libraries and structures, because I'm using the AWS SDK, which is newer, people made other SDKs around it before. So now when I search for a certain keyword, different libraries pop up, which do not have the same data type that it's returning. And because Rust is specific about its data types, uh, I will be importing the wrong crate they call it not packages oh uh, yeah 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 and uh, and i have to figure out the right crate the right import and it's not as easy just to create another file in your same project and say import from this file if you wanted to like share your code in different files you have to now figure out a binary versus library distribution oh. difference and everything becomes its own namespace and gets treated as a crate and i just i just gave up it was just I, currently, my code is a single file divided into a bunch of functions calling each other. So this is a throwback to you learning Java, really. Pretty put much. It, put it all in one file because you don't know what else to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, compile languages. Right. So every time I want to run something, I have to wait, compile, wait for the compiler to come back, give me some answer, and then run it, which is very frustrating because I'm spoiled by Ruby and Python. Right, interpreted things. Yeah. So e even JavaScript, no JS runtime, just run the thing, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. so uh, my question, because the only thing I know about Rust is that uh, everyone on the internet's really excited to learn Rust. Mm -hmm. Other than that, what's, and I assume it's fast. Uh, is that its main selling point? Is that it's fast? Yeah, that's what I was going to touch on. The cool part, the only cool part I found about it so far, Okay. is. It is fast. Once it's compiled, it takes almost, by the time I hit enter, it'll come back to me and say, no, I failed. It does. You don't even see the processing happen. But when I have it working, 
I just hit enter. I've like run some commands with like time run this because it's so fast when I hit the button that I can't even see. And for similar programs that I would probably run in Python within a second or so, it's like 0 0.029 millisecond or something. And I'd be like, oh, okay, that was fast. That was mm -hmm. really fast. <laughs> um, and uh, and it makes sense why like any speed specific languages use it because it's fast. Uh, pretty much from what I understand, I'm pretty sure this is public information, uh, but a certain storage service is written in Rust a lot of its components uh, just because it's super fast, have, has all the checks and nooks and crannies and uh, yeah. And so what is is Rust meant to be in any domain or is it like fairly web focused? Is it fairly some other area focused? I'm just thinking of how it compares to like Go or C or like existing languages and why we have a new one. Oh, because uh, it is, again, much faster than even Go. Oh, because Go is the language everybody says is fast. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So that's why you can... That's why people accept all these trade-offs probably in user experience. Yeah. Because it's just that much. It goes burr. Yeah, it, it, it does go burr. <laughs> and I would presume like if you have a lot of C experience, writing Rust is maybe not as bad anymore. Uh, maybe Okay, now I scratch that. I take that back. It is hard. It's I guess the transferable skill is you've suffered before so you can suffer again happily. I see. Uh, because C doesn't have objects and stuff and Rust clearly does. And function names and such and whatever but yeah. well, i'm really curious to see if in four or five months if you've totally turned around i i am too because this is all self-learning yeah within two weeks in a tight deadline of something i need to deliver right away based on external libraries so i know nothing about the language or its functioning so i'm looking up syntax understanding how it works looking up documentation and trying to just like piece it all together so it works mm -hmm. Uh, from what I understand, I will be given some sort of Rush training in my team, and I will get to work with all these Rush geniuses on my team. So once that happens, and I actually understand what I'm doing, mm -hmm. and then I, when I see error, I can be like, oh, I understand what's happening. Yeah. Maybe I'll come back and be like, why doesn't everyone use Rust? God. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious to see if that happens. Because yeah. even when I was a junior dev years ago doing Go, mm. and it would just be like, struct cannot, or cannot a martial data type struct into this? And I was like... I don't know what this means. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this language is dumb. <laughs> I don't know how to yeah. run it. I don't know why it is this way. Uh, yeah. And now I'm just kind of like, oh yeah, it's just it's just saying I gave an invalid data for that data type. Like it's not a big deal. But at the time, I was like, this is stupid. Why is it not easy? Uh, but yeah. maybe it will be once you know what's going on. Yeah. Why can't everything be just like JavaScript, where you just give it string one and number one, and it's just like, oh, you want eleven? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It just figures everything out for you. Yeah. You don't have to think. Thinking yeah. is bad. Yeah, JavaScript's motto is a, a, if at first you don't succeed, just do it anyway. Yeah. Like, You're never going to succeed anyway. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, right. that's why we're on the uh, do the same <laughs> dev <Yeah>. show. <laughs> so I will save the rest of my rant for a rushed specific episode and oh. we'll call it being rusty or something. I don't know. Oh, I can't wait. Um, and then the final thing I want to mention, which I found that was a really cool utility, is there's this open source software called Pigs. Pigs. And it's gzip on roids. It basically takes gzip, uh -huh. uh, divides it into chunk, and paralyzes. And you know, I'm a big fan of threads and paralyzation. You sure are. Which uh, is funny, because you don't like 
functional programming, and it's real good at that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna skip past that. Uh, right, cool. I'm just here to throw shade. Yeah, and and yeah, so I started using it. Uh, it was slightly hard because it's not as common in the world, mm-hmm. and if you are on certain distros, you have to build it yourself. So that part was slightly less friendly because I couldn't just be like, yum, install pigs unless I know the right repo and REPL and all that. Uh, so I got the code built it, and ran it, but so much better. I gzipped this like two gig file and it, because it does it sequentially, it took like 20 minutes and I ran pigs and it was like four and a half minutes. It was done. Wow. I was just like, great. It just, and there was, this is like dash nine. This is like almost highest compression. So I was very impressed. And they have a decompressing module also called DPIGs or something. I can't remember. Uh, but it's single-threaded, but apparently it still is faster than regular gzip utility. Hmm. Um, so I would recommend if you're looking into it because I was very impressed. Yeah, and uh, those are those are my frustrating, cool things. How was your life? Well... You're going to make me look like a loser now because we got this tech podcast. Mm. Yours were all techy. Yeah. Are you going to talk about Rocket League? No, actually. I'm looking oh. at them now, and they are, they're tangential to tech. Uh, but the first one was just uh, YouTube knows me well enough mm. that it just recommended a video that it thought you'd, you'd like this. And they were right. Uh, it was a guy who built a uh, one hertz redstone computer, and he just made a video about it. And I didn't watch the whole thing. It was eight minutes. I think I watched six or so of the minutes, though. So it was still a pretty interesting video, all things considered. Uh, but it's cool. He just walks through the different parts, and he's like, yeah, it supports these operators. This is how you load in numbers. He had a random number generator built in and some tutorials for how to, like, he wrote a, he, he wrote a manual uh, and put it into one of the books in Minecraft wow. that he you have in like the user interface section and it just shows you like where to put, put all the torches so that you can program it. And so he's like, here, I'm going to program the ad or a, a basic sum program. And then he punches in the numbers and it shows up on this seven segment display. Uh, and it was cool cause it was, um, naturally as you'd expect, he chose two numbers. The first was 69 and the second was 42. Wow. So then the output you see is one, one, one. It was very good. Uh, but he also had a hello world uh, that he pu- he programmed in and then output it to a 16 by 16 segment display and it full on just printed hello world like the the letters and it was very cool so anyway i liked it it was neat and i've seen some less interesting uh minecraft redstone computer videos before where they're like oh i made this quad core computer but then it just shows it like the like helicopter around it and just make cool music and mm. watch it do things, but you can't, they don't explain anything it's doing. So you're like, does it do anything cool? Or this guy's like, it has, it supports this many outputs and this much programmable memory. And here's an example of it doing things. So I'll link that because it's cool. Yeah. So again, tangentially related, not, it's not like talking about a new language I learned or something. Uh, as per usual, I have another recommendation for Lex Friedman. Mm. because I'm not even done this episode yet, but it's just so good that I feel comfortable recommending it, which is uh, he has a guest, some some young lady from MIT, but I don't remember her name, Ar- Ariel, Ariella, something like that. But her, the topic is space colonization and self-assembling space megastructures. 
and it's legit. As soon as she used the the term programmable matter, I got very excited. Basically, wow. she gave her whole PhD on like how to leverage the quirks of microgravity and the environment that gives you to use uh, electronically powered magnets to self-assemble structures. So they have like these panels and the panels know what how they should be organized. And so you can essentially just like throw them out into microgravity and then they use their magnets to pull towards each other and then they assemble. And if they assemble incorrectly, they kind of just chat with each other and say, hey, I'm not supposed to be attached to you this way. And then they detach and they reassemble in the right way. Uh, so they've been doing it with these like three inch by three inch tiles as like a proof of concept to get the uh, software right. But they're also building human sized tiles uh, so that when they launch them, they can make these big structures. So it's a very interesting episode. Uh, they're, the fact that they're doing these little proof of concepts is cool. Very, very interesting. But she also talks about, you know, the big dreams of where these sorts of things could go in the long term. And it's all very interesting. So I uh, highly recommend that if any of it sounds cool to you, which anything about um, the main topics he covers that tends to interest me are like uh, complexity theory, uh, origins of the universe, and... Um, cellular automata and this was a lot like cellular automata as soon as you start talking about self-construction or self-assembling systems because each unit is kind of like a automata that needs to know how it fits in the system yeah so, I was so a, a bunch of fan. robots that can assemble themselves um in microgravity so yeah, yeah that's how we die so. that's right yeah 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 uh what was it something about gray goo was the big fear right I don't know what Greg Goose is. Uh, I don't know what Greg Goose is. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, they were self-replicated. It was this this fear of self-replicating uh, micro machines. Mm. It's like tiny tiny robots that could replicate, self-replicate, and they would create like a Grey Goo that would take over their world. Mm. Uh, I, f- I forget what it's from, but I learned about it in university somewhere. I saw it in South Park. Grey Goo. I don't know if it was Grey Goo, but it was oh. some celebrity who was really fat and started eating everything, became goo, and started taking over the world. <laughs> ah, yeah. yeah, South Park is my favorite documentary, so yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that, that reflects reality. And the last one is interesting and cool. So the first one was cool, this one's interesting, this one's interesting and cool. That does not mean it's better, it just mm. means that it combines those two things because I couldn't pick one or the other. Mm. And it was, I mentioned this guy before, but Matt Diavella has a YouTube channel and he's like a filmmaker guy, but he has a lot of stuff on productivity and he put out a video recently called the problem with productivity advice. And I thought this is going to be another stupid video, but Matt's videos are good and he doesn't put them out so frequently that I'm going to skip a lot of them. So it's like, I'll give it a shot. And if it's not good, then I won't watch it. And it starts immediately with a like Gary V uh, impersonation that got me bought in because uh, he's just mocking the whole hustle culture thing. Yeah. So I was such a big fan of it. And anyway, this video is really good. He basically just talks about, uh, n- he talks to this guy who wrote a book recently. So it's one of those typical promotional type of circles that this guy's probably doing. Uh, but they just talk a lot about uh, how doing too much is counterproductive. So like do only doing so much as you can fully recover from the next day is the way to get the most done and having a good balance in life and those sorts of things. So uh, it was really good. It was another one of those videos because I think I've mentioned it every time 
I've discussed one of his videos. I've said, this is all things I already knew. Mm-hmm. But just hearing them again are a good reminder. So I yeah. uh, highly recommend listening to that or watching it. It's mostly a video you listen to, but he's a good editor, so I'd say watch it. And the last one is my wholesome recommendation. Wow. So I'd forgotten about this video until we were talking, or my girlfriend and I were talking about Canadian accents and like rural Canada versus BC, like mm-hmm. rural Ontario where I grew up versus BC and these different areas. And I remembered watching this video when I first got a longboard in 2020. And it was this guy, Alex Hannigan. Uh, he made a How to Skate video. And he has, the reason I thought of it is because he has a really strong, uh, like rural Canadian accent. Hmm. But it's just such a, uh, a fun video because he's got this really jo- like jovial personality. And he's a really good skater, but he's just taking it easy because he's showing you everything that you would need to know on your first day. And yeah, just hearing him say like, the first thing you need to do is get a helmet because we care about safety. <laughs> and then he's just like, you might find cool stuff if you go outside, like this ladybug. <laughs> it's just, it's hard to have a bad time watching Alex Hannigan videos. So uh, that's my wholesome pick hmm. for this episode. Nice. Yeah. I need to watch this. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Soon I'll be Canadian and I need to make sure I true like get that accent. A bud? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you just got a new board. Yeah. <laughs> I need to start, you know, classifying who's my friend, who's my buddy, who's my pal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who's my guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. It is. Just like caching. You know what? Caching is almost as important. Almost as important. Yeah. Almost. 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 All right. Va- it's vaguely important. <laughs> uh... Well, we can discuss that more while eating a bagel. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, Nathan, what do you think is caching? I think caching is when you try to store something Hmm. more locally so that you don't have to go get something somewhere else. So basically, speed up read times and the cost can sometimes be uh, write times. So you have to duplicate the data somewhere. Yeah. And so that'll take some time. But the end goal is to reduce subsequent reads. And there's a bunch of strategies for that, but that's the basics. Yeah. So like if, uh, for example, back when we had phone books, if you had to look up someone's phone number in the phone book every time, that would be tedious. But if you looked it up once and then wrote it down on a piece of paper and said, you know, grandma's phone number, and then wrote it down, you've now like cached that in a way. And if her phone number changes, you will have outdated information on grandma's phone number, but it would be quick to access. <laughs> wow. Them's the facts. That is the episode, you guys. Yeah, that's all you need to know. <laughs> There's nothing left. <laughs> Caching is writing down grandma's phone number. Mm. Well, yeah, if you were ESL like me and when you heard the word caching first, it is not about money. And I was really sad because, mm. uh, yeah, it's just cash, cash money. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm probably going to name the episode something like that. Okay. Our, our recording is currently named Cash Money. Nice. I, might, I might name it Straight Cash Homie or something like that. Mm. Yeah, we got to be in with the crowd. We're hip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the most hip thing I do, <laughs> record this podcast. <laughs> 
You know, what? in my eyes, that makes you the hippest. Oh, thanks, Gan. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is caching and how do you want to structure this discussion? <laughs> um, well, th that pretty much covered the whole thing. Wow, um, we're done here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll just go into details on a few things. But yeah, caching in, yeah, in nutshells, just get to the data as quick as you can. So you just try to bring it as close to you as possible. Uh, and uh, my favorite analogy that someone taught me was uh, a handyman worker trying to work on a house. The fastest tool he has available, which would be cash, is his hand. So the hammer in his hand is much quicker to access than something on his tool belt or something sitting on his truck. And if someone, if PC principal is listening to it, it could be a handy person, it could be anyone who is working on a house. Uh, I'm just, <laughs> I've just watched that show too recently, so yeah. it's stuck in my head. So there's a little PC principle going in my head being like, are you discriminating against women building houses? Um, and yes, we are. Yes, we are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't cancel us. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, and, and that's where, that's the different layer. So the way I, I think of just computer science in general or programs, everything is you read data you store data and you process data mm -hmm. and caching is there to make reading much faster and it is just really it, it's like almost silly when you try to look at these massive infrastructures and all they're doing is just saying okay what's the closest computer where can we put this data so that someone is closest accessing it uh, and i just always thought that was hilarious because even though we're all these this complexity built all across the world. It's really just, what is my closest wire to a hard drive that I can read some stuff from? Yeah, give me the fewest hops. Yeah. Oh, hops are great, man. Mm. Um, yeah, so I thought I'd start off, we could start off with like some types, then some applications, the apps we can use, and then some pros, cons, gotchas kind of thing. Okay, so what do you mean by the first one? Give me an example. Oh, uh, different types of caching. So DNS caching, for example, uh, or like different styles of caching that is used in the outside world that you may or may not see in your career. Okay. Uh, so one of the ones I see all the time is DNS caching because IP addresses change constantly and it's all done so much behind the scenes that none of us really ever know when something changed. But all our ISPs in our browser takes care of that. Um, yeah, so anytime you want to find out what google.com points to as a number, it might change in the next five minutes and you would have zero idea because everything got cached. Um, funny enough, throwback to the Facebook uh, outage. That's, what, that's why it took a while for everyone to slowly figure out what went wrong because the service that's telling the outside world what's the new IP addresses went down. So all these services are trying to hit facebook.com being like, I have your address. And then slowly all these caches expire. And then they're like, oh, my, I guess I don't because I can't get the new one. <laughs> so people are just like, I, it's loading. And then it immediately stops loading. What is going on? And it just, it was funny because someone made a little graph as well of how it slowly like started expiring out all over on like the loops of ISPs and such. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that's actually hilarious. It's actually hilarious. Yeah. Um, another one that I think you would be a big fan of. Okay. And probably use. All right. CDNs. Yep. Tell yep. us about CDNs. All right. So imagine that you got like some photos 
mm-hmm. and you upload them and you will down if somebody downloads it and they're like oh this took a while and later somebody else comes on they're like yo i want that photo and it's fast it's because there was some cdn caching so the way that this typically works is you upload your content somewhere and then a cdn distributes that globally so that people in different regions can download it more quickly and then there'll be a caching layer uh, so the Caching layer does some sort of magic that I don't really know what it does, but it just makes it go fast. But yeah. the first person has to request it uh, normally. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's mostly, it's a content distribution network and it's distributing your content globally, normally globally, unless you're region locked or something. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just to speed up content distribution. So a lot of like websites, uh, that sort of thing. If you're hosting a static website, you'll you probably use a CDN. You don't have to worry about expiring things often uh, but if you do invalidating cdns is kind of a pain uh, so ideally yeah you cache the things that aren't going to change very often in a yeah. cdn yeah like your fab icon or yeah website logo or the profile pictures yeah website. profile pictures of your employees that you've uploaded or something like that things that are annoying when they're cached mm-hmm. are things like your index.js file that mm-hmm. you decided to uh, you know, put through Webpack and build and optimize, and then it deploys, and uh, it only get the new updates only happen for some users, and then other users they have a cached version, and then they hit the API, and the API returns invalid data, so then it explodes, and people report bugs, and then you're like, ah, just refresh your cache, and then you find out it's browser caching because browser caching is the devil, and uh, yeah, it wasn't the CDN's fault at all. I just blamed it on that because I actually wanted to get to browser caching and how it annoys me. Yeah, that is the next one. Tell it, us about browser caching. Oh, my God. So <laughs> browsers, they're like, we're basically an operating system. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're real important, and we're just going to try to make everything seem super fast, uh, which is fine, except that one of the problems with caching is that things can go stale, and things often go stale in the browser because we write applications now. We don't have a lot of static websites. And so what will happen is your website has like an index.js file that you did not add a timestamp to or anything like that. So the browser just caches everything that it can. And if it checks and nothing's changed, then it just keeps holding on to it. And so, yeah, you get your QA team or even worse, your support team or your salespeople uh, they try to load up the website when they're doing a demo and then they're just like, ah, oh, it doesn't work. And they just clear your browser cache. I don't know, man. And so this has happened everywhere that I've worked. Uh, so they're, I'm sure they're, they're good for something, but they just feel like a pain for a web dev. Yeah. If you're listening to this and you love Redux, just know it's really enabling that whole browser cache. Oh, concept. Redux is evil. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a big fan. Yeah. But it's it's what we have. I actually have a note somewhere of doing an episode on evolution of browsers at some point in the future. Holy smokes. Yeah, they went from, here's a bunch of text on your screen to let's run Web3 enabled graphic. Like your browser is now accessing your graphics card on your <laughs> hardware. It makes zero sense. Um, oh, and written in WebAssembly probably. <sighs> Um, but this is not the episode for that, so I will move on and not express my anger towards that right now. Yeah, express. Uh, triggered. <laughs> yeah, triggered. <laughs> um, another very famous uh, caching mechanism, database queries. Yeah. Everyone loves that. 
everyone who's ever used a database. Yeah, so I actually wanted to, at the beginning of the discussion, kind of just lay out a few quick things that you might want to cache. Mm. So something with a database query that, yeah, I was basically thinking of it as like data that takes a long time to fetch, data that is uh, takes a long time to process, uh, or data that's just really large. And so you're basically have you've got like bandwidth or time to process or something like that. And so the database queries can kind of fall into either like processing or fetching times, depending on how big the data is, or I guess all of them, how big the data response is, how long it takes if it's data that needs to be computed at runtime. Like if you have a, a ledger-based um, billing system or something, mm -hmm. and you have to crunch all the numbers whenever you fetch it, you want to cache that. Uh, whereas if it's just like data that you know is accessed all the time, doesn't change very often, but it takes a while to look it up, you just want less database queries running. So like, yeah, cache that. Yeah. Uh, so those are the, the big three that I think of anyway. It's like, is this going to take a while? Is it going to be heavy? Or is it uh, just difficult to compute and we don't want to have to compute it every time? Yeah. And then depending on how and where you're storing the cache, some, something I always recommend to people if they're using like RDS, mm -hmm. uh, which charges you based on your reads and writes as well. Right. Um, just throw everything in a cache that you know won't change for a while because you don't, you could save up a lot of money depending on how many database reads you do. It's not even about the load at that point. It's you save money. Yeah. Same with yeah. if you use something like Cloudflare on a static website. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, your your little WordPress site, uh, the server pretty much never hears from anybody because it's all just stored in Cloudflare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one good thing WordPress used to have. But then they added so many plugins that figuring out what's the right thing to cache also became a nightmare. True, true, yeah. Um, but we wouldn't talk about that. No. Uh, <laughs> and if you're like me, figure out what the difference between Cloudflare and Cloudfront is and memorize it. <laughs> uh, because at one job I was using both of them and I just could not, could not keep track. Uh, and the final one that I could remember as the types, I don't know if there's more, I'm sure there's more, but these are the ones I wrote it down. So, and you chose to listen to this. So, um, is the final one, the, like the computer level. So we have L1, L2, L3 caches on CPU level. We have other caches on memory level. I don't know what the difference on the memory one is. I don't think it's L1, L2s. Uh, but everything lower level hardware basically just does that. Uh, there's also hard drives now that have a little like cache section on them. And they are marketing it as like, I mean, when I say now, it's probably like the last 10, 15 years they've been doing it. Uh, but when I learned about it, it just blew my mind where the hard drive has some sort of thing to figure out, oh, this data gets accessed the most, I'm going to store it in my cache. Uh, so even your hard drive has a bit of memory sitting somewhere storing all these data mm -hmm. uh, so you don't use your actual memory to do it. Yeah, I read about that in the textbook that you gave me. Ah. Yeah, because okay. they were talking about different types of caching where it's like right through and right back and whatever the third one is, but... Yeah. They're hard to remember by name for me for some reason, but the concept is easy. Yeah. <laughs> That's the mo most things with like lower level comp side things, right? It's just like, you're like, oh, this makes sense. I understand why they did it. I don't know why they named it this and I don't have to remember this really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and even on the CPU level, I don't fully remember. I know the, I think one is the closest, three is the farthest. 
and based on the core there's like core level caching and then l3 is like shared by all three cores l2 is used just by the core element is like between threads on the core or something i can't fully remember but it is based on a multi-core processor they they'll just be like oh this data is accessed most frequently or being processed just by this little single threaded cpu core so we'll just cache it there mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah it's just crazy how at every single level of what you're doing on a computer it's just cached you're you you requesting a cat.jpg of the internet <laughs> is getting cached on a web server somewhere on some sort of cdn on some sort of hard drive on your local browser cache probably in one of the cpu cores and your memory and there's just like all these copies and footprint and different data formats of this cat.jpg and uh, that's just just it's just mind blowing to me it just, mm. just so so happy that it happens and so embarrassed how many times things get duplicated like how have we not solved this problem by now <laughs> how does everything needs its own little uh component to show but well you know what doesn't the browser it needs to stop it <sighs> yeah <laughs> do you do you want to <laughs> no, no okay that's all that's all i need to say okay i don't even do i haven't done web development in like a year <laughs> still just that's how how deep the pain runs yeah remember the manifest json files mm-hmm. for for making them like web compliant or offline compliant mm-hmm. uh caching those were fun uh (laughs) when you accidentally break the whole website you're like uh okay time to destroy your web workers and yeah (laughs) oh yeah web workers that's what's the name i kept forgetting uh and yeah and then the final thing in the classification uh warm cache and cold cache which really just means is the data relevant or not i don't know why there's like all these in names it's just like oh does the data in the cache accessed oh it's warm now let's say this it doesn't matter. Why is temperature associated with this? <laughs> There's just data in there. If it's accessed, great. If it's not, great. Figure out your policies and life cycles. Why'd you got to name these things? Someone coming, looking at your cache, being like, hmm, this is warm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, who's making that call? Why are there even terms for these things? I don't know. Uh, but comp side people, they like their labels. Yeah, so. a lot of puns in there, too. They like a lot of puns. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that with any sort of computer or software history things. You go to like a Wikipedia page, you're like, this, it's a play on this older thing. You're like, of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're clever because they have nothing else. Uh, I will move on from that. Uh, Now, on to benefits. Okay. What are the benefits of caching, Nathan? Uh, It makes your website over or your your API or pretty much whatever. It just makes it faster. Yeah. Uh, So it's going to be less compute intensive at runtime it's going to return data faster and uh yeah generally just the end user experience which is typically what people who would maybe listen to the show if anybody does hmm. probably cares about yeah uh, if you're if you're i guess if you're the end user of a low level graphics card or something then you're just the person like designing it or something yeah uh, and then you would care but generally uh, application level concerns it, it's going to run faster. Yeah. That's and the main benefit. If you have something that runs slow and you're not in tech, you can just like, you know, go to your engines, but like cache this. 
Just say oh, the God. umbrella term. Oh, God. Uh, just be like, make this go burr. That's too real. <laughs> I, it's too relevant yeah. <laughs> to the last four months. Yeah. Can we cash this pricing model that changes constantly, please? <laughs> it takes too long to load the purchase page. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, yeah, so that's a benefit. And then you already mentioned one of the other ones, which is uh, if you're paying for services, you're going to hit them less often. Uh, if you are just trying to reduce something like hits to your database, reduce database connections, uh, caching queries, we'll do something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so typically, yeah, you're just ac not accessing the original source as often, which can have different various benefits depending on what that source is. Um, but the end user is just going to go, oh, it goes faster now. Yeah. How yeah. Nice. And you can like promise all these things like, It'll be loaded in a within whatever seconds. Because uh, if you have a consistent caching mechanism, you could benchmark that and make that part of your application. And just be like, hey, my application will be burr in this much seconds, uh, <laughs> depending on whenever you use it. And then you can like make sure your load testing and everything follows those patterns. If there are certain SLAs you need to hit, um, caching might be the way to go. Instead of trying to optimize your database query, be a lazy developer, just cache it. Don't take that <laughs> advice because <laughs> then you might hire me later and tell me to fix it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Instead of uh, running properly optimized queries on the database with proper indexing, just fetch all the data in memory, join it, and store it in a cache. Uh, why make database do heavy lifting? Yeah, why? I mean, that's what S3 and JSON fields are for. Exactly. You've, anything that can fit in a JSON field is just a blob. Yeah. Just throw it in there. Who cares? You'll get, you, it's basically a dict. You can get it later. Yeah. Uh, who needs? Python, everything's an array. Yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just go get it. And then if, yeah, if it's too big for that, just upload it to S3. And then instead of the Python dict, you just have a link to your S3 where you stored it. You can get it. Uh, it's technically cached. It's not fast. Yeah. Um, but hey, you didn't have to think harder and make your website or your uh, code smart. You just had to shove it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, uh -huh. So yeah, don't do any of this. <laughs> that is the lesson, and <laughs> I can confirm it's happened. Ah. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I wasn't joking. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to take that one step further and just be like, put CloudFront in front of that S3 for this database query. Well, yeah, that makes it go burr. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. So this is all hypothetical, of course. <laughs> yeah, take your SQL query, base64 encoded, name that the file of the JSON, store that, fetch that through CloudFront. Yo, dude, so I watched a Redis video. Mm. I don't remember where uh, or why exactly. For some reason, I was told to watch this Regis video, and the they showed that you could yeah basically do that where you made the key the Reg the SQL query, and that way anytime you ran that query, it would just return the cached data from Redis. And I was like, I mean, yeah, but also <laughs> why? Yeah, like this just seems it seems like you could probably just write whatever the parameters are like if. Surely your query is not that unique, like cache the org ID or the account number. And it's like account number colon user, and then that's your key or something. But yeah, they're just like, nah, just the whole thing, dude. <laughs> Anytime it changes, just get a new key. Yeah. 
If it doesn't change, same thing. It's like the data underneath clearly couldn't change ever. So just cache the SQL query. Entirely. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It was so strange. <laughs> but yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I'm sure there are reasons to do that because it was in a video from someone who I think knew what they were talking about. Mm. But uh, it struck me as odd because I'd never heard of such a thing. Yeah. Maybe they're also handwriting their SQL queries instead of using an ORM or something. Oh yeah, sure. I was thinking writing them like on paper and I was like I don't think <laughs> is this like a coding interview <laughs> yeah you write it on a paper you scan it the OCR you take the OCR barcode and then yeah that's how it all works yeah uh, <laughs> you interpret it with a uh, machine learning algorithm to parse your handwriting mm -hmm. and then it uploads that through natural language processing trained on SQL mm. and lets you know about any syntax errors at runtime, yeah. and then you're good. Yeah, so anytime you need to query your database, you write it in a piece of paper, wait four hours, and it'll come back and say, oh, you forgot a war state. Yeah. <laughs> heck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You gotta work on your H's, that was not clear. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, okay, now that we've talked about all the benefits. Sure. What are the gotchas? Why oh, caching can be bad? Because it sounds like it's the greatest thing ever. It's not, okay? So it's really <laughs> critical. Caching is a critical part of like designing efficient systems. But you need to know how long to keep the cache for because it would go stale. And as soon as you are caching something, anything that consumes that runs the risk of accessing stale data. And so you need some strategy for cache validation, which automatically adds complexity. You need to have some way of estimating how long you should try to cache it for in the first place. And what you want to avoid are things where it's like, I cached it, I invalidated it. I cached it, I invalidated it. Because you decided to have a TTL that didn't make any sense, which is the time to live, which is how long you cache it for. And so it is critical it improves performance in the ways we've described, but it necessarily adds complexity. And the complexity is essentially the dimension of time. And unfortunately, time is really difficult to deal with uh, when you're a developer, because um, not everything happens all at once. And as soon as something goes stale, like, like I'm saying, if you have a front end, like a UI that's consuming something and it's cached and you've deployed new code and didn't properly invalidate the cache and it tries to run it, suddenly you get a white page of death because your app explodes because the data, shape of the data has changed. The front end expects it to be a different shape. The back end has it cached. It returns the cached data and it all explodes. And then people complain and then you have to explain that this is why sales shouldn't decide how to architect your application. It's very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, uh, I think, the obvious answer is stale data. Also, if your data is stale, it might just not be relevant to people, whoever's consuming it. So if you, if you have something that changes every hour and you cache it for a day, it's very quickly irrelevant and it's cached for a while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's a problem. But yeah, the, the whole cache and validation thing, that's important. So knowing when to go in and clear the cache uh, having a strategy for clearing the right thing. So for example, you have to have a strategy for saying, okay, maybe you cache all of the uh, information for a particular type of query for every account at like a certain time of day. And because you know that it takes a while, you know that that's the main reason why people use your application. 
if one of them changes, you don't want to invalidate all the caches. You want to know which account it changed for, and you need a way of then, like, if it's an external system, you need like a way of polling to see if it changed. That's going to be adding complexity, uh, or you have shorter time to live where it's going to occasionally like check back with the system instead of going to the cache first. It's gonna be like, all right, check the actual thing, return that thing, and then cache, cache it on the way back. And that's kind of the difference like I was talking about with the different strategies, where it's like sometimes you'll have a write back where on the way back it'll cache it. Sometimes it's on the way in, like hit the cache, get it, or if it misses, get the data, load it in the cache, and then return. There's different strategies there, and they all are affected by what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And so effectively, yeah, you just, you increase performance with a necessary increase in complexity, which can lead to bugs and uh, all sorts of issues. But like you said, caching exists everywhere at every level. So it is necessary, Yeah. Um, but it's something that needs to be thought about carefully. You don't just, we've joked before, throw ragas at it. Uh, you don't just throw ragas at it. Yeah. Figure. Oh, you should also make sure that you are uh, actually hitting your cache. So like if you load mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff into your cache and then you just still have 100% cache misses, then <laughs> you've cached something <laughs> that uh, either it has the wrong key, it's the key's changing every time for some reason, uh, something's going on where it's trying to look up this thing and it's never finding it. So if uh, you're caching something that literally always changes and so the thing you're looking for is never in the cache, that's a problem, or you have... Uh, randomly generated your key or something in your in your cache so uh, that's the key is changing the data is in the cache somewhere but you're just not finding it all sorts of issues or if you're clobbering keys that could be a problem too you're like oh I accidentally made every single thing I store cached as the key is the word undefined mm. that'd be a problem yeah because then you're just gonna keep destroying that key over or you're gonna populate it once and everybody's going to get that data, which can be a problem, especially if you have something like compliance you have to deal with where your cross-account uh, data should not be should not be accessed across accounts. You've got issues with that. So it's everything. It adds complexity to everything. Yeah. It's really storing it and fetching it fast is NAS, but actually making sure that data is valid. That's the hard part. And yeah, you'll have multiple copies everywhere. The great thing and the sad thing about uh, caches is they're memory-based and not persistent. So if first case scenario, you're really angry and don't fully understand what's happening, reboot the machine. It'll just go away. <laughs> so long your store, cache store is, your storing mechanisms are correct. Uh, it'll refill, it'll be fine. But because the problem happened before, it'll happen again. So make sure you actually fix the root cause. Mm -hmm. um, I know certain caches like Redis also has these options where if you're rebooting or if the process is dying, it'll flush the cache to disk and can reload from it. Um, unless it's really business critical, I will always advise against it just because caches are meant to be short-lived. Caches are not meant to persist and store data for long-term. And every time I've seen a Redis cluster actually write data and just reread from it on reboots because the process is dying, about three out of 10 times, the pro like the data is not corrupted because whatever serialization it did uh, is not the right way because the process got interrupted halfway through or something bad happened to it. And now you're just sad because you have data, it's valid data, but it's stored in an invalid format 
and your API can't read it, Redis will just be like, oh yeah, I have the blob, here's the blob. And then your API tries to decode it, and it's like, well, what does this mean? And it's like, it's your data. It's like, nah, nah, this ain't it. <laughs> this is a garbage child. What did you do to me? Um, so yeah, figure out, make sure your data is encrypted, don't persist it. Serialization is a big one. Whatever you're storing, because at the end of the day, it's all strings in byte format. Make sure it can be serialized. Make sure things are easier to decode and encode, uh, which again, hopefully whatever you're using has libraries that does it for you. But yeah, figure out what's the best place for it. Because I've seen like some old school Java programs where they would just do application level caching. Anything that wasn't properly serializable, they would just have a centralized in-memory cache on the server where the Java process is running. So they didn't need to serialize it in any way. They could just store the object in memory and just fetch it from there. Um, but that caused problem if you had a scale distributed system because now different servers have different types of data. And uh, yeah, Java already is known for its extremely high memory footprint. And if you start throwing a whole bunch of things that never expire, um, your server's just gonna run out of memory and it won't remember why. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> Figure that, figure that out. Yeah, that's the big one. It's just, yeah. Invalidation is the most important gotcha. It'll, anytime you think you've cached it properly, you will be wrong and your data will live longer than you need to or it'll be living too short than you need it to. Um, yeah, so just constantly do better. It's a recursive process. Yeah, metrics are important. Like I said, check your cache hits and cache misses. Yeah. Check how often different things are being hit. So maybe you cache something that takes a long time and you're doing it like on a scheduled job every day, but then it goes six weeks and nobody reads it. That would be good to know. Like, hey, this key, you cache it every day and uh, we never use it. Okay. Reassess why you're caching things at that point. Yeah. Just like um, any good data storage system. Figure out if your data is needed. Yeah. Yeah. Which you kind of... Um, alluded to this earlier, but with the like different strategies of if someone asks for it and then you cache it, it's a very efficient way of not overpopulating the cache, but that first person has to suffer. Yeah. Uh, and then if you pre-populate, keep it warm, then, <laughs> uh, then it's going to be fast for the first person, but you might have an overfilled cache where it's just like you got a bunch of stuff cached and no one will look at it. So in that case, if you're doing that sort of thing, which is kind of what we do at my current company, then knowing that things never get touched mm -hmm. is useful. Uh, and that way you're not doing all this extra processing for no reason in our case. Uh, if It might just be looking up some sort of uh, large object or something uh, in some other cases. Yeah, even if it's blazing fast, the more you populate a cache, just like any other database, it'll be slightly slower to fetch if it has to go through and look through a million records. So yeah, make sure your counts are under control and you're not going crazy. Yeah, uh, did you have another section after this? I don't remember. Uh, a tiny one just for what apps to use for caching. Oh, perfect. Things. Yeah, because that's what I was about to bring up. Okay, now I have, I have one last thing okay. on what not to do. Um, make sure wherever you're caching is as close physically possible which means if you're using a cloud, it's not cross-region. Your web server isn't US East one, which just avoid that anyways. Uh, and your whatever Redis is sitting in US West two because you decided that was better for you. Um, 
Uh, and yeah, always, always just try to keep it close or keep it close to wherever your customers are. Mm-hmm. If your infrastructure is used best too because your devs liked it, but all your customers are sitting in Singapore, maybe put that's where put the caching server uh, <laughs> and maybe move your entire infrastructure there if you need to. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably why people use US East One because it's like central to the world almost um, and just put everything there and it's still in US. So just avoid 1A, use US 1B, C, D. I think there's also E and F now. Yep. Um, so can yeah. confirm. Ah, I see. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, best def, but not a. There you go. Yeah. Finally, yeah. the apps. Yeah. Well, I was going to bring up just as a general before going to the specific applications, the general concept of think about what kind of data you'll be caching because that'll affect where you want to store it. So, for example, like S three, it's not an efficient way to cache your data, but if you have like these enormous objects that you want to cache. It might end up being the right place. It might not. Uh, versus Redis, where if you're storing like some integer that you just need to look up, like, yeah, just throw it in your Redis. Uh, it's going to be stupid fast. And it's really lightweight and easy. Uh, and if you have, for if for some reason you have like a relational database and that's got all of, that's going to make sure your data has tons of integrity and all these things, but you're also, for some reason on the side, have like a document database you could throw things in there that would make sense. Like if you have these gigantic documents you want to store, uh, maybe you have to fetch from a bunch of different tables in your relational database, and then something like a document database that's super flexible and doesn't really care, you might put it in there, uh, versus throwing it into Redis if it's actually just huge. Um, Because they're going to be better at certain things, especially if you need to query it after. So that could be good as well. So just thinking, Again, like a high level, what sort of concerns you might have. Think about what your data shape and size is going to look like before committing to one solution to rule them all. One solution to rule them all, yeah. One solution Speaking to rule them all. Speaking of, Redis. Yes. It is the one solution to rule them all. Usually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you go into a system architecture interview, the first thing you say, Redis, and they're like, you're hired. Yeah, good job. Yeah. We've said it before in the podcast, I'll just say it again. Yeah, just... Learn Redis. Or just learn the word Redis. Yeah, um, yeah. Make sure you say it. If you've ever worked with a JavaScript object or a Python dictionary, congratulations. You understand how Redis works. Mm. Like yeah. it's, it's basically just one giant flag object. And you're done. You're done. Go home. Yeah. Make that 100K salary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't. Yeah. So that was my big one, the main okay. one. Yeah. Uh, then it was just like application specific. I'm going to go plug Elastic Cache in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll give you an option between Redis or Memcached, yeah. which is again, just, I, I love these little AWS services, which is like, here's an open source service, uh, but we'll host it for you. Uh, you could host it yourself too on an EC2 instance, but we'll do it. We'll do it for you, which I guess is still a valid service, but it's just funny to me why Redis isn't like, hey, we're hosting it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, I guess I will. Okay, I will. I will stop this thought process because I think I'm convincing myself of staying to AWS again. Um, yeah, memcached. Uh, if you're using in memory, you know, throw object, throw hash maps, always great. And uh, internet, you got CloudFront, Cloudflare. Um, but again, why would you move out of AWS ever? So <laughs> I don't know. 
So just, yeah, use CloudFront, or if you have DNS caching, use Byte53. Most of this stuff will be hidden away from you. Um, yeah, or if you're using WordPress, there's plugins to cache in the WordPress somewhere in memory for things. Um, yeah, depending on your use case, you'll find almost too many tooling for this, but that'll make you dig a deeper hole. So be very careful of where you put it and what you put it in. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Phrasing. So uh, I've already complained about Redux briefly, but that is for front ends. That is where people tend to do all their caching uh, in front end web apps these days. Uh, Redux or something comparable, Vuex or whatever you're using. Uh, and actually, fun fact, one of the front-end things I was the most proud of writing ever that definitely nobody cared about or understood why I wrote it uh, was a Redux automated cache-busting uh, integration. And it was a component, which I was so proud of uh, because it didn't require a bunch of wiring up to things. You could just drop this uh, reload component into a... Uh, I think it was class component still at that time, but you could drop it into the returned object. And then on the, yeah, it was, because on the class, you would then just have, I had some sort of um, class level attribute for it, but you just listed out like the keys or something that you wanted to do. Uh, and what it would do then is it would automatically, when you hit the reload button, it would look at the class, check all the keys, go to the Redux store, automatically bust them all, and then next time, and then it would trigger a reload on that class. And then the class, it, it was only for like children. It was intended to be for children. So you put it at like the page level and say like, yeah, all these, actually, I think it was actually better. I think you put in the uh, references to the child components that you wanted to re-render. And then they uh, cleared their cache because they already knew which ones they had, something like that. But I built it at the hackathon and uh, no, nobody understood why I did it, but I was like, you know, you know how like in Gmail, how there's a reload without the reload button, you get all your mail. And they're like, yeah. It's like, well, I built that because our app keeps going stale, and nobody cared. But I was, I was quite proud of it, um, not because it was simple once you got into the source code for it, but because it was really simple to use. Mm. I mean, I, I don't think we ever used it after I wrote it, other than on the two places I added it. But I was still very excited to demo it. Wow. Yeah. I don't remember this demo. Uh, no. It was probably because I was like, oh, front end, and it's like stayed on my keyboard. Correct, yes. But I am very proud. You're probably just... now I actually understand this. You're probably rerunning Jenkins or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, OpenShift's yeah. down again. But yeah, because the, the whole thing with Redux is that it has these selectors, and that was what added the complexity. Um, I'm remembering it a bit more now that I say it, but basically, yeah, you pass in these selectors, which are functions, and so whatever this thing I wrote did... It figured out based on these selectors, how do I get to that cache and then bust it? And then it did that automatically. And then you, yes, you give it selectors. Haha, -ha, that's what it was, not child components. You gave it references to all the selectors. It used the selectors to kind of do like a reverse lookup where it'd find it, bust it, rewrite it, and then uh, reload the page and repopulate. Wow, wow, wow. Very cool because we kept having issues where like the product owner would be sitting next to somebody and they would like update it on a different browser and they'd be like i don't see it I'm like okay 
reload. Like, I don't know why you expect it to pull. We discussed with you that this wasn't a good implementation because nobody's going to do this with this application. But then they could just reload. And that website, and the reason why I did this in the first place, talking about performance, was because the app took like 25 seconds to load on first load. And so I was like, yeah, we cache everything. So let's at least let people individually bust the cache. <laughs> Yeah. For things so they don't have to wait through 30 seconds every time they want something to change. Yeah. So yeah, actual real life example that nobody used. Make it a library, sell it. Uh, well, I don't think I actually know I do because I forked it before leaving the project. So somewhere in there, I could probably look at it and be ashamed of past Nathan's development. But at the time, I was very happy. Yeah, be proud of his idea, not his implementation. True. Yeah. Yeah. I like your spirit, kid. <laughs> that sort of thing. Thanks. Uh, so I think I think that's everything I have. For yeah, caching. me too. I mean, I had no notes. I just chatted. So that's everything I got. It was all out of your memory. Correct. Yeah. And now uh, I'm all out of memory. Ah. Uh, what are we talking about? Um. Well, peak better dot doing better. Okay. So things I'm going to do better on and did do better on. Yeah. Well, okay, so this is a bit of a different week. Normally, I'm the one that's overloaded with things mm -hmm. I did and will do better on. Uh, my did betters, I did start grinding a bunch of uh, Rocket League 1v1, and that's been fine. Uh, not terribly exciting. And I did do some more Spanish. So not every day, which was the original plan. But I'm exposed to Spanish every day, so it's something. And then doing some... Uh, lessons it my frequency has increased which was still better than before so it counts see uh and i mentioned offhandedly that i had my like to do better list which was just like they barely count as things that i could say oh i need to do better on it's like no you just need to do those mm -hmm. uh, so i did call my mom we had a, a brief three-hour conversation and wow. uh <laughs> i did my taxes so i did the things i said i was going to do um, there are some things I didn't do, and honestly, I don't care, because my do-betters for this week uh, basically don't exist. I'm not committing to anything in this episode. Peak Nathan. Yeah, well, it's not even that. I just, I just can't be bothered with committing to more things mm -hmm. this time. Uh, it's almost like my, in a way, like my mega do-better is stop trying to do better on things for a little bit, like at least until the next recording, because I had this whole existential crisis like a few weeks ago where wow. i was like what are my goals why are my goals who are my goals what is life uh, why do i exist um, my usual things that used to happen every sunday afternoon but i uh, have had enough things changing since i moved here that it hasn't happened and then it, it kicked off a few weeks ago and i chatted with all my friends and her advice was maybe stop trying to set goals all the time and mm -hmm. just chill Yep. And so, yeah, I'm going to try to just chill. So one thing I do have as like an action item of sorts is to get back to my work schedule that I had before stopping going to WeWork. So I'm back into going to WeWork more frequently. But today I left my work laptop there. So I have to go into WeWork in order to do work, which was working well before. The only issue with that was I wasn't coming home for lunches pr uh, properly often enough, but that's a solvable problem. It's much better than having like this weird uh, 
lack of separation between work and everything else in life. So especially as I get back into more Palumi nonsense, I need that separation because mm-hmm. it's infuriating. And that's uh, that's about it as far as my do better. So not a whole wow. lot today. What about you? Yeah, join me on the make no resolutions this year side. <laughs> we could together have no long plans. Nah, I still have my Q1 and Q2 goals. <sighs> Boo, Q1's over. Get over it. Wait. Well, yeah, that's why I have all my... Almost true, yeah. Well, yeah, by the time this goes out, it'll be over. We'll be in Q2. Yeah. I still I still do have like my Q1 and Q2 goals written out, and I've got rough ideas for Q3 and Q4. Mm-hmm. So I still have those, but the like day-to-day, I'm at least going to take a few days off of worrying about that too much. Yeah. Good uh, job. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> that's already doing better. Yeah. Uh, on my did better... I re-downloaded Duolingo, uh-huh. even though I don't like fully believe in it. Yeah, um, me neither, but I still have it as well. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it, It's at least the same words every day you hear and you're like, okay. And I, out of all the animations it has for the tests, uh, I really enjoy the bear when you get it right. He like does a little dance. Uh, and depend, I don't know what triggers that final animation of when you finish the entire thing, but there's this like emo aubrey looking girl and she just like does this slow clap and i just love this so much that i'm like trying to do more yeah (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um so i got that i started watching more of that youtube lesson of the conversations but like when you're watching them and you say the words you're like okay this makes sense but actually remembering the words is like so much harder yeah uh because i can't remember what good day is anymore or good afternoon sorry right it's convenient having a girlfriend that speaks fluent Spanish because then I can go through all this terminology every just get her to move here we can save on rent I can learn Spanish (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah this is your invite if you're listening Um, and so the other thing I did was read a little bit more started the 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 practical guide to Linux handbook oh yeah the thick ass book yeah Um, thick boy yeah, the thick boy. Uh, so far, it's only been like intro and history, so it's fine. Um, nothing too technical has popped out so far. Mostly just learning about Linus Torvalds and other people. Uh, and uh, there's this book I have about um, how marriage as an institution was set up by basically like um, corporations and capitalism to control mortgages and households. And putting men as the head of the house is a patriarchal thing. It's like very, very like Marxist left wing people hating on the structure. Okay, cool. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, you can tell I love that. <laughs> I, I fully, fully see your expression. Uh, but I'm trying to. I'm just trying to understand. So I just want to see that perspective. Sure. Uh, so I'm just reading through it. There's so many words in there because they're really trying to sound smart uh, that I have to like look up constantly, and I'm like. I think I'm a proficient English speaker. Yes. But then I see all these words and I'm like, oh, I don't know enough English. And then I have to look it up. I'm like, these are the words somebody uses to like really describe the kind of marginalization they're facing. Uh, And I'm like, you could have just said like, this was bad. Uh, (laughs) And I would get it. Uh, But anyways, uh, doing that. uh, But I want to, I do want to finish through it. It's just not catching my attention as much. Uh, but it's not, it, it's just enough interesting that I'm like, 
oh, interesting, this is what they mean when they're like following this certain person or whoever this person's point of view was. Sure. Um, Having gone to university in the last five to ten years, I don't need to read a book on that. I, <laughs> I was exposed to plenty of that nonsense when I was in I school. See. Yeah. Were you in a liberal arts campus? There was a lot of liberal arts. I yeah. see. Okay. Yeah. That yeah. Lots. Sense. I heard about Marxism all to, all uh, the time. No, yeah. I was I was sheltered off in the engineering department, so I never heard any of it. I see. Uh, so my worldview is very much I just learned it because I live close to Eastman and people are too woke here. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just like, oh, interesting. This, these are perspectives that exist. Let me understand them. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, my work life has gotten slightly normal now because I'm actually doing work. Okay. Uh, so the did better was setting up boundaries again, setting up because it is easier to like go with the flow and invest five hours trying to multi-thread rust and then remembering this is not my priority anymore if it's i will sooner or later learn this i don't need to learn this right now let's go eat oatmeal uh, so I, that's been good i haven't had oatmeal in almost two weeks i don't even know who you are i i understand why you're not having it but i just think you've been replaced by some fembot or something or like mailbot i guess yeah. uh Fembot was just the term from Austin Powers that popped in my head. But yeah, you're some sort of android because the Nathan I knew yeah. wrote unit tests and ate oatmeal. That's right, yeah. And now you're all out of oatmeal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, do, I do really want some more. I was tempted to go buy some today, but mm. I did not. Instead, I made a bunch of rice and ate that. Yeah. Just don't hate you. have oatmeal. Get those ab veins. That's right. Yeah. Gotta get lean for summer. <laughs> uh, so I can be the Ago Ruben. Uh, and then <laughs> for doing better, uh, I'm going to continue with Duolingo, uh, invest some more time with Rust. But the thing I'm most excited about is at work, I'm starting to get more opportunities actually architecting a system end to end. So I'll be taking this like data analysis pipeline, work with this super cool data scientist and deploy this entire infrastructure end to end as opposed to here's a cube cluster deploy web api on it throw some caching somewhere here's a database that scales um and then there's a front end backed by s3 and cloud format and uh, write all of this in some sort of deployable pattern and go home uh, which was fun it was its own fun challenge but and i also don't want to scale out jenkins servers anymore so this is a new kind of scaling that I'm looking forward to because I don't have much information in this domain. Uh, so it'll be fun to see how these pipelines and SageMakers and these native cloud services plug into each other. Uh, and I have to really keep cost at the back of my mind because not that anybody at AWS cares, even though frugality is like one of the core values. They're just like, just get it working, figure out the cost later. Uh, but in the real world, that works the opposite way, where it's like, get it working, but make sure it's the cheapest way possible, mm -hmm. uh, unless you're working for another corporation. So um, I'm just looking at that, trying to understand it, and uh, I just have to remind myself of sooner or later, I might wanna take those skill sets somewhere that doesn't have unlimited money. So I need to learn how to do it in the right way, scale it out, because apparently I'm like running C4A 24X large computers that cost $3,000 an hour uh, to run low tests on a service, um, which I'm just like, 
this, this is just like one area, one app creation deployed in our test. This is not even production yet. And uh, this is beta launch. Um, so I have to just make sure I figure out practices around it and prescribe them to my team to be like, hey, outside world, it would be nice if you did this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, sort of excited for that. That does mean I have to start drawing more diagrams and start writing more docs again. Um, but I'd rather do that than figure out concurrency in Rust until someone teaches it to me. <laughs> so I will, <laughs> I will keep that pause and do some requirement gathering and all that good old intermediate slash senior dev work, uh, which I have been missing out on for a few few months now. There you go. Yeah, you and I will just gradually drift closer and closer to becoming the same software architect person mm-hmm. over time. Started from opposite ends of the stack. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just drift, <laughs> drift together. I'm working my way through the the DevOps swamp <laughs> right now with all my infrastructure as code nonsense and yeah. In a few yeah. weeks, I, actually, or a few months, I might actually have to like build a front end application again <laughs> and host it on some sort of internal caching thing. Nice. Uh, so then I'll come to you and be like, look at my view code. Uh, yeah. Make it better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I I have to keep in mind those moments when you're like, how do I make TypeScript know that this is the data that I'm giving it? I'm like, aha, I can be useful. I know a thing or two about TypeScript. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I was, don't get it. That was my language that I didn't like for four to five months until I was convinced that it was better than JavaScript. Yeah. Anything at this point really is. Yeah, especially the way that people are using JavaScript. Because I stand by it. If you're just wanting to learn a language, JavaScript or Python are pretty comparable as your first language to learn. Like it, as far as just learning it and like writing, you just want to write some functions that do some things. It doesn't really matter which one you learn. Yeah. Uh, but if you're trying to yeah build a React app with no types, I'm like what are you doing? Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as a first language, just go with Python because you could be a kid or a PhD candidate and no one would know. That's right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. pandas, pandas, pandas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll link that as well. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's an awesome video, yeah. Yeah, a video from a postdoc ju- uh, junior Python developer. Yeah. <laughs> just giving you all the advice you need. Yeah, arrays are tuples, uh, sets are unordered tuples. Oh, sorry, arrays. Tuple, tuples array. are arrays. Yeah. Arrays are arrays. Lists are arrays. Yeah. Uh, sets have no order. Yeah. Yeah, all sorts of things. It was good. Pandas. Pandas, pandas, pandas. Yeah. Cool. I think that's it for me. Yeah, that's all the information I want to convey. If you guys have anything you want to learn more about, let us know. Um, yeah, we'll cache your messages and don't look at them until they expire. But True. they'll be there. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.